Welcome to episode 197 of Controller Controllables. And what a great guest we've got for you today. A tennis coach who has coached eight top ten players on the WTA. He started off his coming onto our TV when he was coaching Amanda Kotza back in the day who had a career high of number three. And then most recently, we saw him sitting in the box as he was coaching Emma Raducanu as she made her run at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. He's also the father-in-law of Sir Andy Murray, who has married his daughter, Kim Sears. And Nigel has contributed massively to British tennis over the years, but also to women's tennis in general as he's coached so many players at that level. So an amazing person to speak to. Loads of great learnings, as always. Loads of fantastic stories. And I'm sure you're all going to love it. So sit back and enjoy Nigel Sears. So Nigel Sears, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? <laughs> Hello. Good, good afternoon. Nice it's, to be here. It's an enthusiastic start, Nigel. You know, we've got we've to get the listeners' attention. And, uh, and, yeah, well, you've got the tone. You've got the right voice for it. And if we now that we've got their attention, I have to start with Wimbledon before we move into your story because we're only a couple of days after a Wimbledon final weekend, which we'll get to the men's final in a minute because we can't not speak about that because that was incredible. But almost on Jabeuf, three out of five. Grand Slam finals now, played the match as if she had the whole continent, a whole culture on her shoulders. I know that you know both girls pretty well. What was what was your take on that final? Did you see that coming? Well, no, I put on a slight favourite, actually, as a lot of other people did going into it, even though Von Drusseber had beaten her twice before this year, which That's is right. relevant. Yeah. And, of course... She is, Marquetta is a very gifted player, got great hands, as Ons does. And Marquetta has made the final of a slam before, so she she knows what being in a slam final is like. She was in the French Open final. She lost that one. She's a very laid-back girl. She would have been absolutely delighted with the, the two weeks she'd had anyway. I watched her play a second-round match against Kuda Matova, very tough draw. And she played a very smart match, used the block extremely well with the great hands that she has. And going into the final, I thought it would be an awkward match for Ons, but I still put Ons at favourite. But as the match unfolded, it was clear just how much Ons wanted it. Wanted it probably too much to become the first Arabic uh, female to, to win the, the title and, uh, you know, or player. So just... Felt she wanted it so much. Wow. It, it, she was unable. She had real problems with the backhand, got really tight on her backhand, made a stack of unforced errors there. And Von Drusseff was good enough to capitalize. That's what she did. You know, I mean, she was just very, very good. She was on her game, took things in her stride. And Ons, despite a good start, just faltered badly at the final hurdle, unfortunately for her. And, and Nigel, I want to come back to the point you're making there. It's We'll come back to it later in the conversation because you talk about those two players and you talk about their hands, their ability to to neutralise, to soak up pace, the ability to, to change, which is maybe something that the stereotypical 
person in in the women's game wouldn't understand. You know, I think, you know, we go back 10 years, it was like everyone has to play a certain way. So I want to come back to that because, and remember the Wimbledon final because those skills were on display and seemed to be on display more and more within the women's game. But they were certainly on display in the men's final in, in abundance. And how how special is Mr. Alcarazza? He's got everything, complete package. So explosive, uh, dynamic power, lightning fast, incredible range of shots. He improvises. He can generate huge power himself. He's extremely powerful and strong and has a big serve and particularly impressive was the caliber of his second serve. I mean, he was hitting second serves at 125 miles an hour. And, you know, he just has that extra bit of power when he wants to, a lethal forehand. I mean, just electric pace on the forehand. But his shot choices and just demonstrating again how effective the drop shot is when played with that kind of feel. I mean, unreal drop shots. And, and you, you've got to remember, you're playing against one of the all-time greats, playing against a hot favourite on the day, playing against somebody who had set point to go two sets to love up. Things may have been different if he hadn't missed, if, if Novak Absolutely. hadn't missed backhand on the set point. And he very rarely misses easy backhands. Um, but Alcaraz is still there. You've you got to remember, he lost the first set 6-1. He was completely hammered in the first set. And... He comes back, he wins a tight second set, and then he goes from strength to strength. And he had to convince himself that he could do this in a Grand Slam final against yes. Djokovic. And what a job he did. I mean, quite amazing. How he served it out as well. Yeah, magnificent. I mean, he's got a big serve, and he uses the body serve so well, but he hits his spot, he gets pace and swing on the wide serve in the juice court. He's got out-and-out power and, and wide in the backhand court. So, I mean, he's got so many weapons and he's so inventive and so imaginative in the way he plays, along with power and lightning speed. So, I mean, wait, how can you top that? Well, somebody will one day. Someone's going to do it to him. But, I mean, what will it be? Somebody who's seven foot tall who can do all the same things? I don't know. But the the bit I'd like to pick up on, Nigel, and pick your brain on this, is if we talk about Jabir and how she mentally approached that final granted we can't imagine the weight that she was carrying and then you look at how Alcaraz seems to just embrace every challenge that comes his way he almost seems to flip it mentally and you know and rather than saying I'm playing the greatest player of all time on his court that he's not lost since 2013 shit how am I going to get through this it's almost like bring it on, you know, bring the challenges, bring the difficulties, bring the emotions, you know, he, he just seems to embrace it with such a, a freshness. Maybe it's his age, I don't know. But how how do you teach that? Is that is that something you can teach? Or is that just something that every now and then, generationally, someone comes through and they just get it? Well, in his case, he came through and his graph was just, like that it was yeah. almost perfect. and so he was outstanding absolutely outstanding as a young player and his his progress has been so rapid slightly different with aunts she's been doing this longer she didn't get immediately to the top of the game yeah. people say she had ability and so on and as talented player but 
it's only in the last couple of years Ants has really played at the top level, whereas Alcaraz has seemingly dominated at every stage he's been at. So, I mean, it's slightly, you know, it's not a balanced equation that really. It's not. It's slightly different. But, you know, I think, yes, there's something genetic there that is very, very special. I mean, Ants is a wonderful player too. But, I mean, this guy is out of this world. I mean, out of this world. Would you would you jump out of the women's game if the Alcaraz gig came up? <laughs> <laughs> Not while Andy's still playing. I've, I've made a promise ah, I'd work again on the men's tour while Andy was still playing. I mean, could you imagine sitting in the opposite coaching box? While uh, Andy- to- Tony Nadal. Tony Nadal's done it. And, you know, like, yeah, but I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. I don't, I wouldn't do it. I, I, I just couldn't do that. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. I said I'd never take a, a job on the men's tour, uh, you know, and, and while he's still playing and he's still playing. So, so if, so the matter. question is, Nige, if Alcaraz did ask you, would you try and persuade <laughs> Andy to quit? <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> no, 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 you know. I mean, yeah, no. I would certainly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not going to happen because I mean, most of my opportunities do come on the women's side because I've been on that, doing that yeah. for so long, and and uh, and that's the way. And I've been very, very happy doing it. And that's the bit that, as we move into your life, your career, you were a very good player yourself. You played, you played at Wimbledon. You played Grand Slams. You you, you played to a to a high level early on in the juniors. Give us a little overview of, I guess, your your journey into tennis. Where did it start? Where did the the passion start to burn inside of you that this was this was the sport for you that was gonna lead you through life, which it has for the last 60 years or so? <laughs> you didn't have to add that bit. <laughs> 50. <laughs> It's a long time. Well, it started off because I grew up in this little village in Sussex. And in this village, it had a cricket pitch, a football pitch and two tennis courts. And that's what we did uh, before and after school. And my my dad was a, a keen club tennis player. And I used to go and watch him play. He used to play with me a bit initially. And I, I used to enjoy playing all the sports. I just loved it. And then he got me to a tennis coach when I was about nine. And when I was 12, uh, my, my coach said, well, look, you know, you're coming to, to these tennis sessions totally knackered on a Saturday because you've been playing school football. So, you, you know, you need to, if you want to be any good at tennis, you've got to, if you want to be really good at tennis, you, you need to, to start specializing. Um, and so from 12 years old onwards, I really gave tennis my best shot. But at, at 24, I realized I probably wasn't going to get a whole lot better. I was sort of fringe and, you know, playing qualifiers and playing challenges. And, you know, if I was lucky, I'd get a wild card somewhere or whatever. But I I, I just didn't feel I was going to get a whole lot better. And uh, at 24, I stopped and a dear, my dear friend Paul Hutchins, who, who then was in charge of British tennis, yeah. said, look, you know, I, you're still playing at a, a decent level. We got this young guy, Jeremy Bates, coming out. So, like, will you take him to Brazil and, right, and okay. doubles with him, and you know, and so on, and and just show him the ropes because he hasn't been on a, a tour and he was just sort of getting into the challenger level and so on. And that was really the start of coaching and and 
very fortunately, he, Paul and, and the LTA put me through my coaching exams very early and so on. And I did some camps at Bisham Abbey and then I traveled with some teams and I worked across different age groups. And, in, and then initially, I started working on the men's side. And there was a sponsor, John Lang, the building from the building company, yeah. sponsored this Lang squad. And, you know, there was Chris Bailey, Mark Petchy, Darren Roberts and Lawrence Matthews, but Chris Wilkinson was on it briefly uh, for a while. And, you know, I, I ended up with, uh, after I'd spent some time with the LTA, Richard Lewis became in, in the head of women's tennis uh, and men's tennis, actually all doing both roles, okay. with men and women's tennis. And he said, look, we're going to start some national uh, centres and can you do something in Brighton and Sussex? And he gave me an opportunity to set up something there. And then, you know, Chris Bailey, Mark Petchy, Luke Milligan, Barry Cowan, Andrew Richardson, Claire Wood yep. came down. And initially I'd been traveling with Petch and Bales and traveled a bit with Luke and I worked with those guys. And then uh, Claire Wood asked me to go on a couple of trips with her and I did that at the center for five years. And then after five years and some frustrations and some disputes about getting more courts because we had a very strong squad and we had the worst facility by miles in in the country. And so it was at Withdean Stadium, Brighton, and uh, it was a sort of a council-run setup and the LTA resurfaced a couple of courts, but we needed more courts and we needed some clay courts and so on. And there were plans in the pipeline and there were promises and wanted to develop it and it never happened. That The promises never materialised. And I was starting to get more and more frustrated. And plus, you know, Chris Bailey, Mark Petchy and Claire Wood were all winding down their careers. But because of the tournaments I'd travelled with Claire Wood, I'd got to know some of the, the pros there and whatever. And out of the blue, I suddenly got a call from Amanda Kurtzer, uh, diminutive uh, South African at five foot two, but with one of the biggest hearts in tennis and was absolutely electric fast. Yeah, so that's how it started. And then I started travelling with Amanda on the tour and – she got to number three in the world and did well. And not, then, not, not a bad start. Well, it wasn't me who got it at number three. Actually, Gavin Hopper, the guy before me, had got it to number three. But you're right, it was a great way to start. And when she called me, her ranking had dropped down to 20-something, and I did help to get her back to the top ten. She got back to top ten. She got back to seven or eight. But it was Gavin who originally got her to three. But she was a, she was a wonderful player. And... Uh, and I and actually, ironically, she she's currently living twenty minutes from our house in oh, Sussex. Yeah, and I oh, I think cool. about three months ago, and uh, it was great to see it. Just asking a question that jumps into my head: as a young coach, which I'm not saying you're not a young coach anymore; you're more experienced coach now. Yeah, yeah, experienced. <laughs> <laughs> in, in terms of. Yeah, be, being being a young coach and, and it happening so close to your playing career, and 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 I guess it's a two pronged question. One one is that anything you would do different as a player, you know, you had relative success as a player, but maybe didn't get similar to myself get quite as high as you know. It sounds like we kind of played to a similarish sort of level where we didn't quite break through. Now, 
then those regrets on or those areas that you felt you could have done better because it's so fresh do you think you were then able to implement that them as a young coach whereas maybe 20 30 40 years on it's sometimes harder to remember how we feel when we were a player and then it becomes a little bit harder to maybe relate i don't know if that makes sense yeah i mean for sure uh, there, there are things when i look back um and I, I mean, I've, just to give you an example, um, when I was 15, 16, things were progressing well. And at that point, the best part of my game was my serve. Uh, and then typically as a young player, I, I was trying to serve too hard. And I, I damaged my shoulder. I got a bad shoulder injury and it kept me out for a year. And when I um, started playing again, I was starting a scholarship at Millfield School. Okay. I was 16 years old, but it was in September. I basically missed the whole the whole year. And the the coach there was a guy called David Kemp, and he and he had a huge heart, and he did everything for all of us in the team to try and help us become as good as we could possibly be. But he decided there um, that it was my action that was causing the problem in my shoulder. But I was very happy with my action. But he changed my serve. And it never as good afterwards. And I don't, you know, okay, part of me regrets that, that I went along with the change because I think it cost me dearly um, as I started to try and play pro and play better. Um, It cost me dearly. But, you know, he did so many other good things for me and gave me so many opportunities and supported us all so well like you know there were a lot of pluses there you know during my millfield that certainly helped get me up to a level to be selected for the british squad so you know that and that was important because it meant sponsorship being on paul hutchins's squad based at at, uh, the ymca in wimbledon and training at queens every day under roger becker at the time that was a a huge opportunity because they financed us to travel and play some what was in those days satellites yep. and lower level tournaments that I might not uh, otherwise have been able to afford to get to. So that was, um, you know, that there were a lot of pluses from going to Northern and so on, but that put me back. Um, it set me back and that caused a problem in during the time I was trying to play. Then I suppose to follow up on your main point there, the thing I would do very differently is that now it's very clear to me that you, you, you've got to look at a player and look at the priorities and the things that would make a difference, the things that, if done better, would really help that player and how to go about it and when to go about it and so on. And it's a lot more specific these days way more specific and of course you've got the advantage of having stats you've got the advantage of um you know looking all your matches back and then looking at other players and you can put two players on a screen and you say look this is the way this player you know who's in the top 10 hits their shot and this is the way you do it and so on and look at it in slow motion and there's so many tools now you can use but i think in those days coaching was a lot less specific and you know, right now, if I if I had that time again, I'd say, right, okay, who's the best guy in, in the, you know, around to help me on this service issue? You know, like who who do I need to get to to sort this out and and help me? You know, at that time, and 
and it's worth taking a bit of time out yeah. and fixing in the same way I remember playing at the same time as me was Paul McNamee. And he was playing the same British satellites and stuff that I was playing. And then he decided his game wasn't good enough. And so he was brave enough to take six months out. He went to Boliteris in Florida. He changed from uh, what used to be an old-fashioned Eastern forehand grip to a West, a full Western grip wow, on his okay. forehand. And he changed his backhand from a single-hand backhand to a double-handed backhand. Co copy of and Jimmy Arias. Oh, my goodness. He did it for six months uh, in such an intense way, hit thousands of balls. And he came back and he started beating everybody. And the rest of his history became, you know, one of the best doubles players in the world. But he also had a pretty decent singles career, too. I mean, it was oh, wow. very respectable and a whole lot better than mine. So I wish I'd done something like that. You know, my the hundredth episode of Control the Controllables was Nick Boliteri. You know, God, okay. re God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, no, and and then we also had Jimmy Arias came on. Yeah. And and they both talked a lot about at that time, and the, the, certainly they they said that Jimmy changed tennis with the with the forehand and whether that's true or yeah. not, who knows? But the with the grip and basically nobody could handle the spin that he played with, and 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 that was then became the Boletari way. Um, so I would imagine maybe Paul went after that period, and that was oh, probably, probably actually no, I mean, right about similar. I would say Paul probably went a little earlier than that. Right, I mean, okay. Nick's always very big on on big forehands and and so on. So, I might have to do my research and get back to Jimmy, get him on the pod, and say, "Hey, Jimmy, you were taking credit for this. You know, we we have on <laughs> yeah, good but, authority." Yeah, is Jimmy's forehand was a lot bigger than Paul's ever was. Right, so okay. you know, maybe Jimmy's was another <laughs> another level again. In terms of then uh, the 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 next bit as you. You start coaching your you you haven't just gone and coached anybody. You've you've started coaching at the absolute absolute top end. You're not doing the necessarily the county squads as such. You know it's it's happened it's happened to a to a very high level. You know working with Chris Bailey and all of those guys. It's happened to a very high level with Amanda. At what point, I guess, for any coaches listening? How clear was your philosophy, and at what point did your your coaching philosophy start to cement a little bit more? Well, the thing is, when I started out playing, I never really had a plan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I just loved tennis. I just played, and then you know, you start, you get to the age of twenty four, and you start to think, well, hold on a minute, I need to get my own place. I need to, you know, if I if I want a family, you know. I'd, I'd already met my wife, my future wife, and so on. And so you start to think, what are you, what are you doing? You need to find a direction. So that's when I sort of made the decision to go into coaching. And, and you're right. I was fortunate in, in the sense that Paul, who had supported me as a player, Paul Hutchins, he, he guided me at the early, early days into coaching and in, in, and in very much in British tennis. Yeah. And I've done a couple of different stints with the LTA and still have a very good relationship with them, you know, in a more of a consultancy role these days. But it's like a, it's a, I think the, the way I'd like to say it, I was, I was fortunate, but obviously once, when you work with a top 10 player 
who who's making finals of big events and so on. The agents become aware of who you are, and closely mm. after Amanda had uh, finished and we we parted ways or whatever. Um, I, I I took a short term job with Barbara Shep, who had been coached by her then boyfriend and had been arguing a lot. And he asked me to do a caretaker role with Barbara Shett. And I did a summer with, with Barbara. She didn't do particularly well, actually, because she was in a bit of a mess at the time, emotionally. But, you know, she, she was sort of ranked seven in the world. So, I mean, it was still at the top end of the game. And, and I, I'm following that after, after I very graciously and very quickly handed her back to her <laughs> boyfriend at the time. Um, I still get on very well with Barbara too. And of course she does a lot of TV with Eurosport. Um, I get a call from IMG about a young Daniela Hantakova. Now this wasn't at the top end because she was only 18 years old and she was ranked 80 in the world. So it was very much a case of starting in the qualies with her and going through that, that, with her and it went very well and I, you know within 18 months she won indian wells from an unseeded position beat three yeah. top 10 players including hingis in the final when she was number one in the world at the time and daniela got to five in the world so after five years with daniela or whatever it got it got to the stage where i was kind of not in a bad way but branded a female coach so yeah. from there you're getting good opportunities from that point because you've already worked with three top 10 players. And I was fortunate enough to work with five more. So eight top 10 players that I've been lucky enough to work with. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey, really. And and, and on that note, so let's take those eight players. How, how do you... How do you approach that? I guess if we take we take it from, you know, you've mentioned agents, so the conversations happen with agents. From that time that that initial conversation has happened, how does that progress into you being their full-time coach? And how much emphasis do you put on trying to match up your belief in how their games should be developed or, or your your beliefs, your own personal coaching philosophies and beliefs and, well, and that, theirs. Yeah. How do you, you how to talk us through that that scenario, how that comes about and and how you get to that end point? Well let's just start with the philosophy because you, you've asked me that. You've mentioned that, that word a couple of times. I mean the first thing is as a coach, you, your job is to help that player become as good as they possibly can be. And that means really trying to find every way that you have at your disposal to help them reach their potential and to make a difference. You know, you've got to try and make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, be by not saying very much, by giving them a free run, letting them compete more on their instinct, or it might be guiding them through every step of the way. It's, you know, every individual is very different. As you get older, it becomes less and less. Your way is the highway. You start off coaching like that. You do. You've got this narrow uh, philosophy, this narrow viewpoint, and you think, well, you know, you obviously got to train really hard and you've got to get super fit, and, you, and then you've got, to, you've got to do this and you've got to serve well and you've got to do <laughs> You know, so you yeah. kind of you got this 
idealistic view initially in, in the early part of coaching. This is certainly how I felt. I don't know if, if you feel the same way. But then from there, it develops and grows through all the experiences you have. And you get put in so many different situations with so many different characters and personalities and so many different game styles. So, I mean, like, that's a very interesting topic when you talk about, okay, so we've mentioned Amanda Kurtzer. I mean, five foot two. <laughs> shortest legs on the tour but electric fast and then you work suddenly work with daniela andercova who's got the longest legs on the tour and is is yeah, six yeah. feet tall you know like so and, and one of them is more of a, a counter puncher and a fighter and a retriever and magnificent defense but but strong enough to counter punch aggressively which is amanda and then you've got daniela who had these long flowing levers and Great, you know, great ball striking and an aggressive striker really at that time with a good serve and good return. She'd been taught very well in Slovakia, had a very, very nice game technically that I had inherited. And so then it was a question of just trying to help her to package that game and, and get the belief and get the get behind her and really try and help her achieve what she was capable of. Funny story is that we set out when she was 18 with a, with a goal of winning all four slams. And, you know, she ended up winning all four mixed. <laughs> and I said, that doesn't count, does it? <laughs> hey, it's so, got, it goes on it goes on the CV, you know. You does just, it? You just, missed the, you, just missed the, you just missed a couple of lines out. <laughs> I've won Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, we always we always joke about that now. In fact, funnily enough, I saw Daniela in Indian Wells when I was there this year, and she said, "Do you realise it's twenty one years since I won Indian Wells when we were together there?" Wow! So go and play some golf and celebrate that. And we had a, a lovely round of golf. So oh, that's that was... nice. And on that, so like, I guess we've touched on game styles, but. You as a coach, who I guess my view from the outside of you, Nigel, is, is, is as a coach, and I've I've not been lucky to spend that much time with you. You know, it's been nice the last few months to see you at various events and get to to pick your brain and have conversations on the bus back to the hotel or wherever it might be. But your, I guess, reputation would have been as someone who is quite strong. You know, quite. Um, a dictator who this is how it works. You've got it. You've got to put the hours in. You've got, you know, you, you've got to go that way. Is there anything within your philosophies of working with players that is non-negotiable for you? You know, there's going to be your various game styles based on their, their physical makeup, their mental makeup. But what are the things that if you work with Nigel Sears, it's a non-negotiable that they must do X, Y, or Z. Uh, and that doesn't have to be uh, how they hit a tennis ball. That can be absolutely anything. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, again, the more different personalities you work with and the different game styles, you become more flexible and more versatile as you get older. However, I like to feel that. I mean, obviously, you want a good relationship with who you're working with, and you, you, it's great if there's a bit of banter and 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 you you can laugh and smile and joke and enjoy the good times and and sort of weather 
the bad times. And there's inevitably ups and downs with any of these uh, coaching relationships in terms of the fortune of the player and, and so on. And, and they've got to cope with disappointments as well as the elation of winning big and, and so on. But I think the main thing is, I, however, all of that being said, I've always regarded myself that I take my, my job seriously and I want the person I'm working with to take the job seriously. Yeah, yeah. Even though you, you have different levels of work ethic, different levels of intensity, different uh, quantities that the player plays or practices, like some, some are capable of great intensity in practice, but they, they're minimalists. <laughs> they don't want to practice for that long. Yeah. They're rather out there on the court for a shorter time and high quality and then get off and i and these people that that i uh, that have been like that i think that they've been very receptive they've got the best out of their practices and then you've got others that just simply want to put the volume in and want to you know they get their confidence from volume and so on so there's no set rule but i guess the answer to your question is they need to be determined they need to be hungry and probably another part of my philosophy is, and one of my favorite sayings, is that perseverance is excellence in disguise. And, you know, that's one of my favorite uh, sayings. I don't know who came up with that, but I've always, that's always resonated with me. And, and I think there's an awful lot to be said for perseverance, you know, desire to be really hungry, to to just go after the challenge, relish the challenge, and be determined you're going to succeed. You never have a lot of confidence until you've won a lot of matches. You need them. It's only by winning matches that you develop real confidence. I mean, you can feel good about how you're hitting the ball, and you can, you know, you can do that in practice and feel good about it. But to have real confidence for when it really matters, you've got to do a fair amount of winning and I think you have to build up a winning ratio you have to win your majority of, tie, of tie breaks you have to win your majority of tight matches yeah. that's what breeds real confidence and, and in that relationship which I'm again I'm, I'm curious I, it's not often I get to speak to someone who's worked with eight players inside the top 10 so these are maybe selfish questions as well but within that situ situation as that's been set up and you're starting to work with a player, it's almost impossible to know that the connection is going to be really strong. You know, you can have conversations, you can have a trial week, you can have, you can have various things, but when you start getting into the real nitty gritty of, is the player going to do those things that are non-negotiables for you? You know, is, is the game style or the identity that they're going to play with matching up with what your vision of that is? So, how quick do you almost, when you take on these roles, how quick do you get to the point where it's like, you should know what, this is gold dust because the best player coach relationships are the ones that have the best success. And how quickly is it like, shit, I've jumped into the wrong job here. I'm not the right person. Do I persevere and try? Or is it sometimes best to say, do you know what? Let's, let's move away from this because this is not the not the right relationship. Okay, so I think for sure you give it your best shot. In every job that you take, you give it your best shot. But it won't surprise you that 
okay, there's eight top 10 players. I've worked with them all different lengths of time. And I mean, I can, I can go through it right now. I mean, Amanda Kurtz, I had three years, worked very well. Barbara Shett was a caretaker scenario, got on with her great off the court. She lost a lot of final set tie breaks in the six weeks we had together. And also she was going through a rough time at that point. She wasn't really that receptive to anybody at that point as uh, just at that point it was a, a a tough time for her she'll be the first one to say that now that was a, a six-week caretaking stint five years I had with Daniela Hantakova uh, the Maria Kirilenko job that I did I'd if Sven Gunfeld who was working for Adidas at the time had asked me if he, uh, Maria was one of the Adidas players when they had this Adidas team and he said look uh She's struggling at the moment. Um, could you go and do the Asian tour with Maria? And that's all he said. He just said the Asian tour. And I said, well, actually, there's a big change going on at the LTA. Um, a guy called Roger Draper has, is coming in and he's going to have a different approach at the NTC. And there's a couple of jobs that were appealing at the time because I'd done an awful lot of traveling. And yeah. at that point, I'd really like to do something in British tennis again. I'd like to be based at home for a period of time. And as you know, because you work with Karl Maas, um, Karl Maas became the head of women's tennis at that time under Roger yeah. Draper. And I became the head coach and Fed Cup captain, which is now the Billie Jean King Cup. But Sven had omitted to tell Maria that. <laughs> because <laughs> he, he just wanted me to help her for a short-term period of time. Right, and so okay. it, was, it was such a shame. But actually, I got on well with Maria. I did the Asian tournaments with her. We went to Korea. We went to China. We did, we did those tournaments out there. And then at the end of it, they very kindly offered me a year's contract. And I said, well, didn't, didn't Sven tell you I'd applied <laughs> for this job LTA, which starts in December? Okay. And no, she said, no, no, he didn't tell me so. <laughs> That's why that one was short. Anna Ivanovich, after that, I worked with for five years. I think the world of Anna, she was a fabulous player, probably the most gifted player I've ever worked with. Um, then I had a very brief stint after that with the Katerina Makarova. That was one summer in the States. Uh, went all right, actually. She beat Caroline Wozniacki at the US Open. I, uh, she won Washington. She won that tournament. She actually did well that summer. But I couldn't go to the uh, – I already had TV commitments. I was doing TV at the time, and I couldn't go to the Asian tour. And she wanted someone to go to do the whole uh, Asian tour. So I said, no, I'm sorry. I've committed to the TV work over that period of time. It was with BT Sport. And uh, – Thomas Hogstad took that job on the Asian tour and he did that with her. But I had a, I had a good summer with uh, Katerina. Annette Contebate, after her, I worked with for three years. That went very well. And then, of course, I'm counting Emma as a top 10 player, Emma Raducanu. I had a brief stint. Oh, I'd worked with her from 15 to 18 as a junior when I was back in the UK uh, when I wasn't on the road with Annette. So I'd had continuity with Emma for three years. But yeah. obviously, I was traveling a lot with Annette during that time. When Emma did leave school, I went full-time with Emma, and I went full-time with her as soon as she'd finished her, her exams in the, uh, I think it was the March. I went full-time. IMG gave me a full-time contract until the end of Wimbledon, and she made fourth round of Wimbledon, 
everything was great. But I, you know the rest. I I didn't get a, another contract. So what? So I, and I have to ask because anyone listening to this is going, okay, what happened? What happened? So so <laughs> well, so what did happen? Uh, I think I don't, it's not a. I had no issue with Emma at all, and and I think Emma's dad just had a different view on, on things. He wanted to use uh, a lot of different coaches, and, well, and he's, he, done he, he's done that. He's done that. <laughs> And that was his view on it. And so that was it. And, and what's I, your what's your view as someone who knows Emma really well, someone who was working with her in the months leading up to her US Open, just astonishing Roy of the Rovers run. Did you see that that was on the horizon that summer when you were working with her? Obviously, Wimbledon, she was fantastic don't know exactly what happened, but obviously we all saw that she had a little bit of a, a moment in that fourth round where she 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 seemed to be struggling with her breathing. People talked about panic attacks, but she was showing that level. And then if you had one piece of advice that you could give her now, what would that be for her to get back to back to that? No, level? I wouldn't. I mean, I mean, this. I mean, to be quite honest with you, I haven't done any press on Emma, and I don't, I, I don't really want to do a, a lot of chat about Absolutely. Emma. So what I will say is, when I saw Emma at fifteen years old, I thought she was sensational. I thought that she was going to be a, an amazing player. When I went full time for those few months with Emma, nothing changed that opinion. I thought that she was. Absolutely top quality, great girl, and extremely talented, and heading to do very well. She was in a good place at Wimbledon. She did it. She did did great. When she went on to the states, she won matches at some, a lot of matches at the smaller tournaments. So she'd had a lot of matches in the challenges before Wimbledon. She had matches at Wimbledon. She she did extremely well in the smaller tournaments uh, in the lead up to the U.S. Open. Could I say she was going to win the US? I'm of course not. Of no. course not. Nobody could say that. Could you say that she was going to break history and qualify and win 10 matches in a row and play the kind of final that she played? Of course not. But I always thought maybe one day she'd win a slam or whatever and she'd win more. Yeah. And, and now I think it's entirely up to Emma what she does. I think she's very capable of coming back and being at the top level again. I think it would be nice if she settled with a team that she really believed in and there was some continuity. I think she needs that. But, you know, I wish her really well and I and I think it's entirely up to her, her future. Would you take the job if it came back to you? I'd, let's, let's just wrap up the Amazon. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course, it's, uh, it's something that, I yeah, I mean, to me, it's an unfinished job. And in terms of someone who has, has had your experience, what's your biggest regret? Nobody I've actually been with at the time has won a slam in a singles. <laughs> I mean, even though even yeah. though they've had numerous quarterfinals and some semifinals and so on, I mean, I wasn't with Anna when she won the French Open. Yeah. And again, when I worked with Anna, she was in crisis a bit at the time when I got the phone call in the first place. And uh, I got the phone call because her ranking had dropped. I, I felt I was part of her getting back into the top 10 again. So this, a similar thing to Amanda Kurtzer, really. 
but she'd already had her highest ranking. She'd already been a good player, those two. So they, was all, all, they were already established. With Daniela Hantakova, I felt I did the journey with her in the same way as I did the journey with Emma. You yeah. know, it was that they, they were younger players and we did the journey from a low ranking. Yeah. So they're different scenarios. Annette Contebate, well, she was in between because she was only 24 or so when I, when I started with uh, Annette and she was clearly a good player. Her ranking was, I think, 27 or something when I took her. And when I was with her in those three years, she got up to 14, made final of Wuhan, made semifinals of the Miami event, had some good results, uh, made quarters of the Australian Open, actually. Um, so I've had a bunch of people who've made quarters or semis, but not somebody who's won the single. So if I look back, it's not so much as a regret, but that was a goal uh, when I started. And that's been a dream that I've always wanted to be with somebody and help them win a slam. And of course, Emma won a slam and I'd been with her beforehand <laughs> and I own mind. I can kind of think, well, maybe I contributed, but I wasn't actually there, you know? And, and do you view, I always find this an interesting question and I ask it to a lot of people, players, coaches, you know, many people that have come on. Do you view your career as successful? Well, I've certainly been a better coach than I was a player. <laughs> there's, there's no question about that. So, I, yeah, I think I've had a good innings and I'm very happy with it. And, you know, to be honest with you, from where I am right now, I'd be very happy to share some of those experiences uh, in coach education and help other coaches with their players. I'm talking to people about doing that at the moment. And I think that I've already done a bit of coach education. I think that's a, a broader remit and it's certainly probably a good thing for me to think about doing more of now. Yep. Good. And my follow-up question to that is, would you measure success differently now than you would have in your, in your younger coaching years? Yeah, I think that... Um, when you're younger, you look at end product and you, you look very clearly, well, let's just look at the results. Let's look at how many slam titles. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. And ultimately, that is the measure. I mean, that is the measure because the ranking doesn't lie and the best players win the slams for that, for that two-week period or whatever. But to make a difference, to give everything you've got to the challenge, to the project, and to make a difference is extremely rewarding. And if you've done that in most cases, then I think that's also a good measure. Good wisdom. You know, <laughs> it, 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 I've, I've had so many of these amazing chats now, and it, it is one of my big takeaways is like, how do we me measure success? And I think it's the same, it's the same with players. You know, like I, I've got a meeting with, with Harry and Lloyd later and we're about, uh, you know, we're going to be going through goals and just kind of re reconnecting ready now that Harry's wife's given birth to their baby boy, you know, reconnecting for the, for the second half of the year. And that's certainly something I encourage players I work with to also have other measures of success that aren't just 
winning a tennis match <laughs> because, you know, if you get those other measures or those other successful th- things in place, whether it's it's happiness in some other part of their life, whether it's health, taking care of their body, whether it's setting something up and buying a house and having things going well in their life, I, I, I guess the success on court is a little bit easier to come by. And and I would agree with you. I think when we're young, it's just it's just about let's take ons. We spoke about ons earlier. Probably in her head, she can't get away from success being winning Wimbledon. And yeah. it's a label and it's there with yeah. you. And you there's so much at stake in a Wimbledon final. And you can't blame her for it meaning everything to her. It's just a question of how you deal with that on the day. And it's you know, I mean, you've got to remember Andy lost his first four finals. Lendl lost his first four finals. I mean, it's like, it's a tough world out there. You're playing against great players. But Andy, and, I, and I'm and i not just using Andy as the example because you're his father-in-law. I use Andy as an example a lot because 2012, the whole world saw him break down and, and you know, show that vulnerability. But I remember really clearly him saying that he accepted at that period that actually I might not win a Grand Slam. And it was amazing by accepting yep. that he might not and removing a bit of the expectation. He then went and won the Olympics a few weeks later. He won the US Open a few months, a few weeks later. He then won the next Wimbledon. And it was like the floodgates of, of success, yeah. this thing yeah. opened because- by removing it as, 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 a, as a must. Now, Nigel, the, I was about to ask you what your most embarrassing moment ever was as a tennis coach. And I'm going to preempt this by saying, do you eat sushi anymore? <laughs> I, well, it has to be that. <laughs> because it's, uh, it, I, mean, it, I mean, seriously, it's happened to me five times in my life, okay? But that was by far... I had very little uh, warning. I was trying to leave the court because I felt unwell and I I thought I was going to throw up. But then when I was just going up the stairs, I just completely blacked out. And it was, yeah, for about... So this was Australian Open, 2016, in the stands. I'm in the stands. And Anna Ivanovic, you'll have to remind me who she was playing, but I... I want, oh, and yeah, I know who it was. She was playing Madison Keys and she was actually a set up and two one up. And I felt confident enough, okay, I can leave now. Uh, she's a set and two one up. I can leave now and go quickly because uh, I, I just felt horrible. I definitely had a uh, stomach issue. And, um, and then, you know, for about a minute and a half, a minute and 45 seconds, apparently. There were some really worried people around me because I, you know, they couldn't find a pulse. I wasn't breathing, and uh, it was scary for those people, including the, her parents who were in the box, and and Andy Bettles who was yeah. uh, there with me at the time. And uh, yeah, no, I, I wake up and I got this defibrillator on me, and I had this person pounding my chest, and it was, <laughs> and then they put me in an ambulance, and I had all the tests, and I stayed in hospital for two days, and. Uh, you know, at even more tests. and it, So, yeah, I mean, the fuss that that caused when actually, by the time I came round in, in the ambulance, I was feeling a lot better, but they nobody would believe me. They made me do all these tests. So, 
And it was all about the sushi. Well, I thought I think it was in hindsight, yeah, because it's it's that those kind of incidents have happened to me a couple of other times when I've had food poisoning and or if I've been in extreme pain, which I was once uh, when I went to the hospital because I'd had uh, issues with my hip and I, I actually had gone to the hospital to have an ultrasound guided cortisone injection into my hip. But I was in so much pain. It happened to me there. And then the next thing I know, I'm in the cardiac unit. Actually, yeah. it happened when I was in a hospital. So that was the best place for it to happen. But Bloody hell. I mean, it, happened, it happened five times in my life. So, I mean, I guess it'll happen again. But I've been, you know, I've had all the tests and checks and everything else. So that was pretty embarrassing. I mean, there's been numerous other things, uh, you know. But uh, <laughs> that's, the, yeah, that's standout. Yeah. And and before we move into the, the quick fire round, the future for Nigel Sears. And in that future, I know we talk about having obsessive tennis parents. Are you going to be one of these obsessive tennis grandparents? No, I, I promise you, I, I felt, I mean, my son played tennis. He, he went to American. Yeah, he did. First, yeah. And uh, I, you know, I watching him play junior tournaments and, and a couple of futures events was almost enough to push me over the edge. Was it stressful? It is extra stressful as as a, as a parent. It, huh? Because you can't detach yourself emotionally from it. It's, yeah. uh, you know, and I mean, when you, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, that I've got some memories of that, and I, I certainly, uh, you know, I've got four grandchildren, so I mean, like, future holds spending a bit more time with them. I think being UK based more. Uh, Doing some work and with a broader outlook, coach yep. education, and, and some whatever helping in a in a broader way. I think that's what I'm looking at. Nigel, you've you've been a, an absolute star today, but you, you also have for for British tennis over the years as well. And you know, on behalf of everyone that you know, there's a big community here at the podcast, a big well done. And thank you for all of your work that you've you've put in. You know, it's only only coaches like yourself that have done it, been on the road, really truly understand what it is to dedicate your life to to producing tennis players. No, yes, there's the ups and there's the there's the great lifestyle that can go with it, but also the challenges and the sacrifices that 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 have to be taken in order to achieve that. So a big big thank you for today. A big thank you for. Oh, thank all, you. All that you've done over over a long period of time. Thank you. The quick fire round. Are you ready? Right. No idea what that is, but let's go. Serena or Venus? Serena. Serve or return? Serve. Let or no let? Oh, definitely let. The most challenging player you've ever worked with? I I get in all kinds of trouble if I answer that one. <laughs> Just say Jeremy Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Just well, it's easy to say him and make him a target. I wouldn't say that. If you could work with anyone on the tour, who would it be? Oh, I'm of, not all, of of all time. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't know about that because I mean, if it if it's a question of sitting there and watch and appreciating the tennis, I'd sit there and appreciate Roger Federer. I don't think he'd need any of my advice at all, but I, mean, I would sit there and watch it and appreciate it. 
because to to watch he was just majestic. What does control the controllables mean to you? You do it to the best of your your ability, but we're all human. What's one life goal you still want to achieve? Somebody to win a Grand Slam, please. <laughs> Underarm serve or no? Oh, absolutely not. Roger or Rafa? Rafa. In, in the terms of the brute physicality and he has to work harder, I think. I mean, I've got massive respect for both. But, I mean, I, I've always admired the way Rafa competes and just leaves it all out there. Who will finish the year as world number one on the women's side in 2023? <laughs> wow. Well, if I had to bet, I'd go with Spiantec, you know, because it's probably going to be Spiantec, Ribikina, or Sabalenka. Sabalenka. Those three. But I think Spiantec is just a little more complete than the other two. So I'm going to go with Spiantic. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Bates. Have you heard Jeremy Bates? No, we haven't. But <laughs> but but the rule the rule is that you've got to you've got to pass the baton. You have to pass. Oh, you really you're making up these rules. I never heard you, of any. You've got to listen to the other 196, Nigel. You'll see. You know the baton gets passed. So that's that's so if it's in your it's in your capabilities to 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 hook it up and let me know then then we'll get Jeremy on. <laughs> I mean, is it does it have to be a British a British guy? No, not or, at all. Not at all. We've had we've had all we've had eager we've had eager on we've had huh? we've had also yeah Kazakina has come on. Um, we've had Borna Chorich. We've had yeah many. There's been many that have been on. So it's, it'd be it's a, a barrel to have Jeremy Bates on, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd have to be a, a really, really dark week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we sometimes get desperate. So when we have a yeah. desperate week, we'll get Jeremy yeah. on. Put it down on the, when I'm desperate. Jeremy Bates, <laughs> when I'm desperate. But then, and then the big question the listeners are asking, because we had Nick Boletari for 100 episodes, you are 197. So we are getting very close to the big 200. Wow. So, who, so who should our oh, 200th episode be? Then you either got to knock on Sir, Sir Andrew's door. You've got to go, you've got to go massive for 200. We you've do. Got to go. We do. Yeah. And, and we have a, we have a verbal agreement. Well, I say we, I had a verbal agreement from Sir Andrew in Marbella a few weeks ago. So we've so he's given me the verbal agreement. It's now about about whether we can get it over the line. Now I don't know if you happen to ever spend any time with him, if you know him, if it ever if it ever comes up in conversation. Totally on the reaction. So and I and you have to address to Andrew Barron. <laughs> exactly. It could it could be any Sir Andrew. Yeah. Uh, Nigel, you've been a star. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Brilliant. Thank you. So the big question I have, and I'm going to ask Vicky, who's alongside me, Sir Andy, is is finally Nigel the one that's going to be able to get Sir Andy Murray 
Hunter control the controllables. Well, I would say that the pressure is firmly on your shoulders. <laughs> All the um, Andy Murray fans who listen to Control the Controllables, and there are many, many, many of us, I think we are all looking to you. Can you get him on? No pressure. <laughs> well, let, well, let's see. Let's see. <laughs> there we're, we're maybe a step closer than we were a couple of weeks ago. This is episode 197. Episode 200, Sir Andy Murray has a nice ring to it. Well, what was it Nigel said? Perseverance is excellence in disguise. So, you know, we'll see if your perseverance for the last three years will, will pay off. Well, they certainly can't knock out perseverance. And, <laughs> but out of absolute respect for Nigel, because he in himself is an incredible, incredible guest to have. Let's bring it back to Nigel. And he, he gave us lots of those sayings, you know, lots of things that... You could kind of furiously scribble down and say, oh, that's an absolute beauty that I'm going to take with me into my coaching career, into my tennis parent life, whatever it might be. And coaching eight top 10 WTA tour players. I didn't realise it was eight. More record. And the amount of times, and I I think it, it, it also shows how serious, and he said that himself, how serious he takes the role, the job. You know, and it's it shows that the fact that he could he could almost just name off not only the players he'd worked with, but the rankings that they were at when they started, the rankings when they left, the amount of time that he spent with them. You know, he's obviously a very proud man and rightly so for for the job he's done, but he still has that elusive Grand Slam title that's not quite to his name as a coach. I think once you're at the level where you're saying that, do you know what I mean? Oh, but they didn't win a Grand Slam when I was working with them. You're working with Grand Slam winners. It's a pretty awesome career. (laughs) I mean, you guys talked about measures of success. How many coaches can say that that would even come in into their stratosphere, radar world? What's the word I'm looking for? Absolutely, and and, and the thing for me, talking to someone like Nigel, and I've been so fortunate this year to have quite a few conversations with him. I alluded to that on the on the conversation we had on buses, you know, going back from tennis centres, going back to the hotel, and just having the chance to pick, pick his brain, really, and you know, find out how he thinks. And he talked about it a little bit on the episode, but he, he actually talked about it even more to me on on this particular bus ride of of how he has had to change as a coach as well. And I think that is a massive lesson for us, you know, because I think there's lots of coaches out there. It might, or might be parents. It might be, I've heard parents over the years that say, this is just how I am. I can't change now, you know? And it's like, come on, we've, we've, we're in a world where we have to adapt, be more flexible. And, and he showcased that, you know, his recent player, was was from China again, a completely different culture that he's that he's had to be able to 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 work in that regard. He's worked with Emma Raducanu. We all know the Emma Raducanu story that you know lots it goes through her father. So how does he adapt to that situation? And Anna Ivanovic, who two thousand and eight Grand Slam champion, lost her ranking somewhat and then building her back up. You know, a, a Hanshakova from a young age who 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 wasn't at the top end of the game but very a, a, a quick riser and and you think about all those different nations all of those different cultures all of those different family setups you really have to be 
a, a person who was able to bring so many skills together to, to be able to make those relationships work. And it was just very interesting for me that that was kind of, he talked about that more than he probably talked about how to hit a tennis ball. And, you know, sometimes we we get caught up on the tennis ball hitting part of this, but there's so much more to it. And the, the adaptability and flexibility of a coach came through loud and clear for me. And not just making it work, but waking, making it work for five years. He said he worked with Ivanovic and five years with Hanchikova. I mean, that is a successful coaching player relationship right there twice. That's 10 years with just two players. I don't know how common that is on the WTA tour these days. I don't know. Well, I know how hard it is being together with you for 21 years. Oh, come so. on. I walked into that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 it is different, obviously. That, that relationship where there is pressure at that top end. They're looking to... <laughs> They're looking for instant results. They're they're looking for small margins to move from number eight to number four, from number four to number two, from number two to number one. So we're talking about very fine margins. The real high performance side of the game. You know, it's rare that you get the the easy wins at that level. And then, like he said, it's it's how how you weather the storms as well, because the storms are pretty. And and it's something I've realised working at that level on the men's doubles over the last few months, the storms are pretty stormy. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you think that it's all angels and fairies at the top end of the game, but it, it's pretty messy. It gets it gets really quite messy because the stakes are so high and the the, the one foot wrong pays so, so dearly. You know, you have to have everything in order. You have to have the team working... <laughs> working round the clock and, and, and everything needs to, to fit into place. And then we've got that, that magic word that is, is so hard to come by, which, which is confidence, which he, which he also alluded to as well. And that's the elusive state that you're trying to reach, isn't it, as a tennis player? You want to get to the point, you, you need to win to build your confidence, but you need confidence to win. So it, we talk about it all the time with our players and, and with our son, you know, if he wins this match, it's going to really help his confidence in the, in the third set tie breaks. You know, we, we, you could have gone into a whole big conversation with Nigel just on that. Oh, I mean, con the, the, the confidence thing is, is, is massive. And this, this, is my, this is my take on it. I think, yes, confidence, we take confidence from our recent previous experiences. You know, it's hard to take confidence on something that happened a long time ago. You know, so how, how things have been going, you know, naturally builds confidence. Now, what do we need confidence for? Confidence helps us commit easier. <laughs> so I actually think we've got to get players into the state of mind of committing without confidence. <laughs> you know, we almost need to take away the importance of what confidence is. Because if, if you become too reliant on it, and it's the same in any field, field of life, you know, any walk of life, you know, you could, you know, lose your confidence as a person. You can lose your confidence in your job. You can lose your confidence as a parent. You can lose your confidence in so many different ways. And if we're dependent on that feeling, then it's hard for us to function. So my, my advice on that is screw confidence we we commit we commit to things that are helpful with or without it yes it's a it's a beautiful thing when we have it but if we don't no stress we we keep we keep committing just like i'm doing right now i'm not confident always talking to you vicky you're a journalist it's not easy to 
come eye to eye with you, but I've just got to keep committing, and I'm going to fronting it out. It, absolutely, it's what it's what we've got to do. And now I'm going to commit to letting you know that we may have an amazing guest for you <laughs> on episode 200. Uh, come on, I, come I, on, you can I, do it. Am I confident that we're going to? I don't know, but I tell you what, I'm going to commit the hell out of <laughs> trying to get Sandy Murray on in three episodes' time. If not, I will try really hard to get another amazing guest on for that. But before then, we'll have a couple of more brilliant guests coming your way over the next couple of weeks. So keep listening out. Thank you for your support. My last plea, if you're still listening, myself, Vicky, many of our family and friends are going to be running the Great North Run, which is a half marathon, 13.1 miles uh, in, in my home city, Newcastle. September the 10th, 2023 for Alzheimer's Society. Uh, my amazing mum was diagnosed four, four and a half years ago. And I've seen the challenges that has caused to herself, but all of the family and the Alzheimer's Society do a brilliant job. So we will pop the link in there. If anyone's got a spare couple of pennies and want to support such a great cause, please do. But till next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.